This morning, as we return to the book of Ephesians, to look at the armor of God that he has given the Christian saints, uh, that we might put it on, that we might wear the vestments of uh, the Christian militant army that is at war with spiritual forces and an enemy that seeks to oppose us in this world, we come to the topic of what does it mean to put our faith in God in the midst of trial and turmoil. And in that, we're reminded that we come here this morning, all of us, with our own different walks that we have taken this week. Some of us have gone to work this week, as we've done the rest of the summer. Some of us have gone to professional internment. I mean, um, indentured servitude. Oh, I'm sorry, I can't remember. Professional development days as we prepare for the school year to begin. Some of us have just counted down the last remaining hours of our summer vacation. Whatever walk we've taken this week, whatever turn we've taken, whatever events we've uh, gone to, all of us come to the church this morning with our own set of uh, flaming darts of the enemy sticking out of our back. The church is a place for comforting Christians who need to be reminded that God is worthy of putting our trust in, not because He's just trustworthy, but because He is the only foundational form and source of truth in this world. I ask then, as we get started this morning, what flaming darts of the arrow have we brought into the sanctuary this morning? Have we sufficiently allowed ourselves to be cared for by the Christians we've been called into community with and nurtured to, that as we stand or sit this morning in the sanctuary ready to open up God's Word, are we actually ready to do that? And I don't just ask that question of you, but I ask it of myself. As we enter with solemnity into an act of worship that is corporate because it is something that we do together, as we follow in obedience to what seems to be a strange and outdated mechanism for teaching God's Word that a fallible man would stand up behind a pulpit and read God's Word, and do His failing best to expound what God is speaking through that. I ask, why do we do this? Is it because you, gathered here today, are incapable of reading God's Word on your own? Absolutely not. In fact, our worship will fall short this morning if you haven't done your part to do your own Bible study leading up to today. Why do we do what seems strange to many in this world this morning? Because it's what God has told us to do. We do it to be obedient, that we might care for one another. 
that we might take care of those flaming darts sticking through our back, that they might be extinguished, that when our faith falls short, that we might lend a shield to a Christian brother or sister. And we'll speak more about that as we look to the text. First, I ask that as we enter with solemnity into this time of worship, that we would ask ourselves those questions, that we would evaluate genuinely if we are prepared to worship, that as we pray, as we will do in a moment, that you would confess your sins to God, that you would ask Him to prepare you for worship, that your heart would be softened. All these things we pray with routine schedule that they would mean something. So bow with me. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Help our eyes to be opened, Lord, that we might be able to behold the amazing truth in your law. Soften our hearts that as we hear what you have to say, as what you have spoken, that we would know how to apply it to our lives. Give us caution and discernment that we would not move too quickly to apply it, but to understand it. Give us the wisdom that we need to do so. In Jesus' heavenly name we pray. Amen. I'll be returning this morning to the text of Ephesians chapter 6. We'll look at the shield of faith that Paul exhorts the church in Ephesus to take up. But I will read the whole passage in context beginning in verse 10. And this week I'll actually read all the way through to verse 18. Or maybe 19. Now I'll read all the way through verse 20. If you have your Bible opened up with me, go ahead and read along as I read out loud. Children, oh, that's chapter, that's verse 1. Let me try again. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, And having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, and the which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. The words may be given to me that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Looking at the shield mentioned in verse 16, we ask ourselves, what is, um, if anything has changed so far in our progression, and certainly it has, and I want to point that out to you before we really get moving this morning. 
As we look at the passage describing, describing the armor of God, I mentioned a few weeks ago we cannot pluck this out of its context, which is the entire letter to the church in Ephesus, where he has so far instructed the church to remember that they were fallen, children of wrath, that he has instructed them that they have been called outside and made new in this creation, that they are in Christ. And we made the point in discussing this that Paul would have had no familiarity with the phrase, have you been born again, or are you a believer, or are you a Christian? He would have asked, are you in Christ or out of Christ? And we see that picture in this adoption that has rescued us from this child of wrath perspective. And then he draws the picture that not only are we in Christ in one in him, but in his body. This is a crucial element as we start to look at these, this uh, armor of God that we are putting on, that it doesn't exist outside of the rest of the Christian army. I make this point because many times, and I've read many commentators and Bible teachers, and, and whenever they write on the armor of God, it seems like they completely miss this point. There's no such thing as an army of one. We call those um, probably vagabonds. We call those... Um, there's no such thing as an army of one. When Paul uses the imagery then of putting on the armor of God, when he tells us to gird up all things with truth, when he tells us to protect our heart with righteousness, when he tells us to put on the shoes of readiness of gospel peace, even as he tells us to pick up the shield of faith. We do not do so for our individual benefit. He calls us into this Christian army or the salvation army. Those who have come to know Christ that we might protect one another. This is important as we look at the shield of faith because I will note the shield is the only element that can be used to protect somebody else. In all of the spiritual armor Paul has given us, the breastplate will not protect the person sitting next to you, but the shield could. The shield is a collaborative element in spiritual warfare in that it provides fortification for those that we sit among. That's important for us to see. What is the shield to this salvation army that sits among us? The shield has been used in the Bible through the Old Testament and repeatedly through the Bible as a symbol of strength all the way back to the Abrahamic covenants before God establishes his covenants with Abraham. He says in Genesis 15:1, and the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. The shield continues to be an image of strength throughout the Bible. In Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law, chapter 33, verse 29. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, 
a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your triumph. Your enemies shall come fawning to you and you shall tread upon their backs. The shield starts to build up what is the strength in the Christian army. So far as we've made progress through what Paul has described as the whole armor of God that we need to put on, we've made difficult movements as we look at how essential truth is. Foundational to girding up every piece of the spiritual armor, we realize that the truth is something difficult to bear. We look at what righteousness is, our necessity, and the requirement that the church is given to live a righteous life, not just so that we can be a people that stands apart from the world or that we look differently, but because righteousness literally protects our heart from the enemy's attacks. We've looked at what does it mean when these things start to come together and our righteousness causes offense in the life of someone who does not want to turn towards God? What does it look like when we proclaim a truth that hurts somebody's feelings? What does it look like whenever the truth condemns somebody by its own words and it causes somebody to struggle with that reality? Not just outside of the church, but inside of the church. You guys have heard about those holy rollers, haven't you? Those Bible thumpers? Have you guys heard about those Christian fanatics? You know what a fanatic is? Somebody that loves Jesus more than me. The truth is righteousness causes offense even within the church whenever there are saints who are fickle and weary and refuse to submit to God in all things. The truth of God, actually, as we've seen not just in the presentation of the gospel, continues to offend with every ounce of disobedience that exists inside of somebody. Well, that's why the gospel is a message of peace. Because it's not just a message of offending people, but it's a message of constantly reaching out to them and asking them to be reconciled. It's not just a message of offense, but when it's actually led by the Holy Spirit, when we actually cause offense because we're obeying God or because we're dwelling within God or we're abiding in God, when we're being obedient to truth, our righteousness is causing offense and we're not just doing it to be offensive, it leads that hand of reconciliation. It invites people back into fellowship. It invites people back into hospitality and all of these different things because that is the gospel of peace. The problem is just sticking your arm out and asking somebody to be reconciled does not always bring them back. For many people, and the Bible is clear on this, a true presentation of the gospel turns them away. I've struggled with this as I think about Jesus's ministry on earth because it seems very clear that Jesus welcomed a large mass of people, even those who didn't belong to an inner circle. But as we look and we reflect on Jesus's earthly ministry, one thing does stand out. He doesn't ask people to stay on the outer edges forever. 
The rich man came to him and said, Lord, I want to follow you. And Jesus said, sure, follow me. Go sell everything that you have. And he left very sad because he had a lot. That's the Derek Brimmer paraphrase. He called him into the inner circle. And he never came back. Jesus didn't call people into the inner circle that they could continue to live life however they wanted. He, he called them to the whole gospel truth. That there could be peace if they would submit to him. But it seems like we're doing things all wrong. It seems like the world hates us more. As, as we become more committed, as we become more resolute, as we put on the belt of truth, as we evaluate the things that we stand for and we say, well, this is actually my personal preference and it has no place in the Christian's life. We throw that to the side. And I say, well, this is clearly what God's word says. I'm going to hang on to this. In fact, I'm going to hang my coat up on it. Nothing will separate me from this. It seems like I've just gotten more radical. What's radical mean? I just love God more than you. I'm not doing it because I am mad at anyone. Oh, we don't choose the issues that the Bible is clear on. God did. This is troubling as we look at the Bible and I submit to the fact that the entire Bible is God-breathed, inspired by Him. This is the truth that upholds everything. There are some things that He is absolute about, that He's explicit on. There are some things that the Bible speaks plainly on. Those are the things that I have to speak plainly on. There are some things that tend to be what we would call gray areas. Well, if they're gray areas, I certainly don't want to go further than the Bible does in, in working on these. I need to identify those as my personal preferences. I need to set them to the side because the truth is absolute, because it's sufficient, because it leads me into all righteousness, because that righteousness protects me from the onslaught of the enemy, because that will allow me to continue to extend peace. And now we move on and we look at the shield, which continues to build strength and is associated with strength. And we realize that if we're going through all of this, this onslaught that seems to come from anyone that stands for truth, this warfare, what Paul describes as wrestling against the rulers and authorities and cosmic powers of this present darkness. If I'm experiencing that on an individual level, my Christian brother and sister, your faith can falter. If we aren't real about that, we're going to miss the whole point. Your faith can falter. Now, I'm not describing apostasy. I'm not describing uh, anything of that nature. And, and as we look at the shield of faith and what it does, we'll eventually build up to my favorite doctrine, 
the preservation of the saints. But your faith can falter. There's great wisdom in the Bible when it calls Christians to be a part of local, identified, visible bodies of Christ. That, that isn't just for organizational merit. That's a, a spiritual issue that the Bible builds up to because we need cooperative pieces of battle equipment, the shield of faith. This isn't something that's unique just to the description that Paul gives us here or even the similar description in Colossians of spiritual armor that he tells us to pick up. This is actually seen all throughout the New Testament as we look at the commands of Christians to care for one another. Those one another statements that continue to come up that Christians are supposed to care for one another, 1 Corinthians 12, 25, that we're supposed to serve one another, Galatians 5, 13, that we're supposed to bear one another's burden, Galatians 6, 2. The shield is a cooperative element because it can be lined up side by side with a fortitude force of all of the Salvation Army working together as we take time to care for the needs of one another. When we see someone struggling to go to them and to help them, to serve one another, when we see somebody in need to provide for them, when we see somebody carrying a burden that is too big to handle on their own, to bear it with them. That doesn't mean be fixers, especially all of the men. Please listen up. That does not mean be fixers. Your advice is not that great unless it comes from the Bible. To bear somebody's burden means to weep with those who are weeping. To mourn with those who are mourning. We don't have to pull ourselves out of it. We can sit in it together. Romans chapter 12. The shield is more effective when it's used together. Again, looking at these one another statements, they build up upon them as we look at what we're actually supposed to do. It's not just providing and protecting, but it becomes more um, fortified in the instructions that we are given to care for one another, to teach one another, Colossians 3.16. To comfort one another, 1 Thessalonians 4.18. To encourage one another, 1 Thessalonians 5.11. And to stir one another up to love and good works, Hebrews 10.24. I won't spend time looking at all of those uh, references, but as we look at these one another statements, it's clear that life in the Christian battle and the life pursuing God and being a part of God's salvation army on earth and all of these things hinges upon our ability to be with other Christians. The next thing I'll note about the shield, and this will be the last note that I make about the shield, and then we'll move on to looking at what does it mean to take it up? What does it mean to extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one? 
But we've said so far that it is associated with Christian strength because our faith is our strength. However, our faith can falter. So it's also cooperative in that we can lend it to other Christians to help protect them by providing for them and meeting in their needs. And last, that it is protecting those other elements that the Christian has spo- is supposed to have already put on. The breastplate is protected by the shield. The shoes are protected by the shield. Reality is even protected by the shield. One might even imagine in looking at this that the Christian is exhorted or told to put on all of the vestments of spiritual armor. That is the shoes, the belt, the breastplate. And they're supposed to take up the shield whenever they see the darts of the enemy coming. The shoes, the breastplate, the belt make up the daily attire of the Christian. Standing on truth, extending gospel peace, protecting our heart with a life of righteousness. And when we're under attack, when we see the flaming darts coming at us, we take up the shield. Now, Paul moves in verse 16 to describe these flaming darts of the evil one. And I want to point out that These are not ambiguous, simply evil things happening in the world. The Bible says clearly evil one describing the one who is already identified in verse 11 as the devil. Who stands against and in opposition to Christians who are living their lives to glorify God. He doesn't want us to glorify God. And so he sends these flaming darts. Well, what are they? In ancient warfare, the darts were not actually there so that they could take out enemy forces or weed out opposition. Most of the time, the flaming darts were there as a distraction because it would cause chaos. It would cause people to break formation. The strategy behind using darts in warfare was to cause confusion. In many ways, the darts of the devil are used the same way, to cause distractions. They're they're persecutions that come from this world. They come from places of leveraging weakness against us. In persecution, Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10 through 12, that Christians are supposed to be blessed. In persecution, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The flaming darts of the enemy are distractions, but they begin with the actual persecutions that come from the world, insults. People saying slanderous and libelous things, saying false things against you. They come from a place of weakness. 2 Corinthians 12.10, Paul writes, That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness. In insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What in the world could Paul possibly mean when writing that? 
When I am weak, I am strong. You all know as well as I do that the idea that Paul is developing in 2 Corinthians is that when he recognizes that he is not strong enough to stand against the enemy on his own, that he becomes strong because his, here it is, faith, his trust, his reliance, his dependence is wholly and completely on God. This is the difficult situation that we face as we look at proclaiming truth, causing offense, extending peace, and somebody potentially leaving it. Somebody persecuting or what it feels like because it always feels personal, doesn't it? Anytime we share the gospel, anytime we share the good news, anytime we proclaim absolute truth and somebody runs away from it, it always feels personal. It always feels personal when somebody refuses to repent. Oh, and I know it feels personal to God. David, after sinning with Bathsheba, didn't he write, it was you and only you that I sinned against, Lord. I realize I am weak. And my faith becomes only in God. These darts come in. Why would God allow these things to happen? We've spent a lot of time already looking, as we've looked at this passage, looking at the victory that we have in Christ, the imputation of righteousness given to the Christian, the process of sanctification given to us, what justification looks like. We've looked at the victory that is already inside of us because we relied on Christ, but we continue to see darts coming towards us. Where is the victory? We sing, O victory in Jesus, and we look at the cross and we sing praises of the resurrection, but it seems like Christians are still fighting in this spiritual war, and indeed we are. Where's the victory? When it comes up and and, and we look at what we're supposed to do to put on or to take up this shield of faith, it is identifying this weakness. Why does God allow it to happen? Because he's actually teaching us something through it. It's actually through brokenness. It's through recognizing that we are weak. It's through, if you are like me, being reminded that you are weak that you're actually able to be fortified, to be made strong, to actually... By the way, did I connect earlier that when we said the shield is associated with strength? It's through our weakness that we're made strong, Paul says in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians. Our weakness is our strength. Our vulnerability in recognizing that we need God is actually what protects us from these things because we recognize that we must rely upon God. Thirdly, the distraction of these flaming darts seems to be Satan's strategy from the very beginning, the strategy of lies, asking Satan's favorite question that he has asked all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Did God really say? That's his favorite question. What's the Bible really say? I was given a Jehovah's Witness track the other day. You've been told that the Bible says. Let us tell you what the Bible really says. 
Just read the Bible. Just read the Bible for yourself. You don't need me to teach you the Bible. You don't need a teacher to teach you the Bible. You just need the Holy Spirit to go along with you as you read it. Put your faith in God. Trust what he says and do not listen to the lies of the enemy when he asks, did God really say? These flaming darts come in. These persecutions, these trials, these struggles, people insulting us, whatever it looks like, and we recognize that they do not come from an ambiguous source, but they come from the evil one, the one who has been identified. Loved ones, I pray that we would not underestimate the enemy as I call these flaming darts distractions, that you would not think that these are some trivial ailment that would come against the Christian, but that we would recognize that they are serious. Our enemy in the Christian life stands against us with what seems like a never-ending quiver full of flaming darts. His ammunition isn't running low. He's not tired. He's not wearing out. Spiritual warfare isn't a trivial or little issue, and I don't mean to trivialize it when I say you already have the victory if you'll recognize your weakness in him. If you recognize your need for a Savior, not just in salvation, but in your daily walk. The Bible tells us, verse 16, to extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. I think it was Augustine that said something along the lines. He prayed, God, make me holy, but not yet. Well, it seems like that might be the prayer of so many Christians today. God, I want to follow you with everything that I have, but not yet. Flaming dark comes, maybe it's temptation. Maybe it's temptation to damage the breastplate of righteousness that would lead you into sin. I'm just going to let that sizzle. It missed me. I'm just going to let it keep burning out. The command that we're given in verse 16 is to extinguish the flames. To put out the flame. Why do we pray, make me holy, but not yet? Why do I say that I want to grow in God and that I want to be committed to Him and I want to learn all of these different things and I want to understand what it means to delight in the Lord, but we hold back so much from Him? Oh, we wonder why these flaming darts won't stop coming towards us. We wonder why these flaming darts continue to be shot in the same place Why the flame continues to burn and it continues to grow bigger as it sits in the same spot that it has been landing in, but we make no effort to take up the shield of faith. As I've counseled people, especially in the area of habitual sin, one of the things that has stood out to me as the most troubling. Even Christians who have placed their faith in Christ, 
who have recognized that there is no salvation inside of them, that they can do nothing to save themselves, who need a Savior, and who have trusted God as that Savior. Do not believe that the same God that can pluck you out of death and create in you a new creation can deliver you from the life that you have been living. That's a troubling thought. I'd ask you to consider if your faith is genuine at all. With such a trivial view of God's ability to work in your life, I wonder, what is your real, genuine view of His ability to work in your life in eternity? But Christian, your faith will falter. The reason I don't ask that question is because in all sincerity, I know the reality that our faith will falter. We'll look at a budget report and it'll look like it's lopsided. We'll look at a need to respond to an issue and we'll say, well, it's going to be so much work it might even cause dissension amongst our body. We'll look at um, a new way of doing ministry and, and we'll say, well, we've never tried that before. We'll look at the way that the world is responding to Christians and we'll say, we really need to be tender-footed on this issue. You know? I mean, it's 2022, y'all. Who are we to be saying that it is sinful to have sex outside of marriage? That's a private matter. That's something only individuals need to worry about. And then they come and ask if they should be married in the church. We should be tender-footed on this issue. Who are we to say that God wants Christians to be identified with local bodies and that we should be obedient to His Word, particularly Ephesians 5.20, that we should submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I'm sorry, verse 21, 5.21. That, that we should be obedient to that and that church membership matters. We should be more tender-footed. We do not need to be tender-footed to stand for truth. We do need to be soft-hearted to extend peace. In identifying all of these things, I have failed to identify many other sins that exist amongst even our congregation that are personable and identifiable. The extension of peace is available for all who sin, not just as a way of turning away against the condemnation of hell, but as a way of picking up the shield of faith that God has given to us when faced with sin. These things are sufficient to extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. Is our faith, which is from God, sufficient enough to do that? When we look at taking up the shield, I mentioned what this builds up into, this preservation of the saints, which is really a development of our reliance upon God. 
that if we believe with sincerity, and we do because the Bible says it in Ephesians 2.8, when Paul says that it's by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the free gift of God. I inserted the word free there to stress what grace means. But it's a gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If God is the one who prepared for us the faith necessary to accept His grace, then He's also the same God who will persevere us in that grace. Another way of saying that is, if you did nothing to obtain your salvation, what could you possibly do to lose it? Does that lead us running astray that we would just say, God, make me holy, but not yet? Or does it make us rely on God even more in recognizing his grace and recognizing what he's provided for us? As we take up faith that he provides for us, that these things would be extinguished. Could you imagine just for a moment what the church would look like if every person who claimed to be a Christian lived out their faith? Could you imagine the testimony of the church, the prayer life of the church? Could you imagine the holiness of the church, the edification of the church as we came together, lending our shield to one another that we might teach one another and edify one another? Could you imagine what it would feel like to be welcomed by brothers and sisters, to be cared for, in such a way that there was no fear about what people would say about this part of your life or that part of your life, but that they would come to you with God's word and they would purify you and they would pray over you and they would care for you. Isn't that taking up the shield of faith? I'd love to spend more time talking about the preservation of the saints and what this doctrine means and how it applies and But I feel now the only thing that we need to look at is how have we lived out our faith as a church? Father in heaven, I pray that you would guide us this morning. In response to your word, Lord, I pray that we would know how to respond. God, I pray that our faith would be seen in more than just our faithfulness to assemble but that our faith would be seen in the way that we live our lives day to day. We pray in Jesus' name because it's the most precious name I know. Amen. Would you stand with us as we prepare?